Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Modern History HSC podcast. My name is Blake Hamilton, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, um, Australia's first podcaster, Australia's first history podcaster. Is that correct, Cameron? Uh, yeah, both of those would be correct, yeah. Yeah, and he's joining us today after listening to a couple of our, uh, to our pilot episode um, and has agreed to come on board to talk about how he gets you know, prepared for doing this sort of stuff because as the kids are starting to do this as part of their learning and getting a lot of value out of it, um, they're wanting to be more better prepared for each episode. So hopefully Cameron's got some good tips for us because I'm going to read through his body of work and I will put some links in the show notes, but his podcasts are No Illusion, The Three Illusions, The Napoleon Podcast, which was the first one that I came across, um, The Life of the Caesars, Life of Alexander the Great, Cold War Show that I'm currently listening to, uh, The Bullshit Filter, which is a no-nonsense sort of news show, The Renaissance Times, currently working on a value investing podcast as well. Uh, author of The Psychopath Epidemic and writer-director of the documentary Marketing Messiah. Have I left anything out, Cameron? Oh, mate. Uh, yeah, look, I've done lots of other shows over the years, but that's enough. That's, yeah. We don't need to... We get the idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, my first question is that for the kids that are listening... And they're hearing that list and they're probably going, damn, I can barely remember the stuff that I've got to prepare for. And it's like one scripted question. How did you go about like doing this body of work? Is it just time or is it like you've got this drive to know more? Like, what is it? <laughs> well, you know, I got, I got interested in history uh, late. Really, I was a, I was a, a, my late teens or twenty or something like that. I think when I got interested in really understanding history, and it was through Napoleon. I had a, I was in a bookstore in Melbourne where I lived at the time, and, and uh, with a mate of mine, and there was a book on Napoleon on the shelf. He said, "Oh, you ever read anything about Napoleon?" And I said, uh, "No." Uh, I was reading history and biographies and that kind of stuff at the time, and he said, "Oh, you should read this. It's fantastic." So I did. And um, I knew nothing about Napoleon at the time, but it, it sort of, I had this idea in my head that I think you get growing up in, you know, the British Commonwealth uh, yeah. uh, of him as a bad guy, like almost an earlier version of Hitler or Stalin or something like that. This warmonger. Yeah, this short guy. Short guy is a warmonger, evil yeah. guy. I read this book. It was by an American author, Vincent Cronin. I think the book was published in about 1971. And it was, it was mind-blowing and eye-opening. I was like, oh, my God, this guy was brilliant and he was a legend. Yeah. A, how come I've never heard of this? I didn't know all this side of the story. B, how come I had this one idea that he was a bad guy when actually, I mean, he wasn't without his flaws and not, not somebody who didn't make mistakes, as is true of most of us, but... He was an absolute genius, military, political, sociological, uh, you know, uh, re, you know, basically hand wrote the legal system for France, which is still used by many countries, et cetera, et cetera. 
And it, and it really intrigued me uh, why I had this one idea of him when there was this completely opposite idea of him. Mm. The, and so I was like, well, which one is true? And that, and so I started reading books on Napoleon. I read probably a hundred books on Napoleon in my twenties. And and what I came to realize is there's no real one version of the truth that comes out in history books. There's a level of bias depending on the author's bias, the publisher's bias, the country it was written in. You know what what books are allowed to get published or are get supported by publishers? Do you? Are you telling the version of the story that is acceptable to the publishers or they think is commercial? And so, um, you know, that sort of started off the whole thing. And, and the other thing that I learned was that by studying history, I actually could understand contemporary events yeah. a lot better, I felt, because people haven't changed much. And as I've done more and more shows on ancient history, I've learned that really humans haven't changed much in the last two and a half thousand years of recorded history, we're motivated primarily by the same things. Uh, it's, you know, we, we have nicer clothes now and better air conditioning, but really yeah. people haven't changed much. Mm, so, um, yeah. So when I, when I do the podcast, it, it kind of depends like, uh, you know, what era, um, what era we're dealing with. Ideally, of course, you always want to start with primary sources as much as you can. Now, that's difficult uh, for a number of reasons. When you go back into ancient history, of course, not many primary sources have survived. The, the exceptions are like when we did the series on Julius Caesar, fortunately, we have Caesar's own commentaries of his wars, mostly mm -hmm. the Gallic campaign, the you know, Gaul and the stuff that he did there. And even though that's highly propagandized because he was writing it to kind of promote what a great job he was doing back home, uh, it was a bit like, you know, there was it was his version of Trump's Twitter account. Uh, it, you know, it's still, a, it's still a primary source. And then we have Cicero's writings and letters. Cicero was a contemporary sort of a frenemy of Julius Caesar's, uh, sometimes on his side, sometimes not on his side. Uh, so we've got that. We've got some other contemporary sources, but that's that's very sorry, very rare to have primary or contemporary sources from stuff. Yeah. You go back to Alexander the Great a few hundred years earlier, we really only have sort of tertiary sources, um, third-hand sources. So you know, people who were basing their books on books that were written by people that had, that had access to the primary sources. Sometimes we're lucky enough to have secondary sources. And, you know, as you, as you move through even ancient Rome and you do the other emperors, again, very little in the way of tertiary sources, some secondary stuff, like we're doing Nero in our Caesar series at, Caesar series at the moment. And uh, we've got some contemporary primary sources there, the writings of Seneca and uh, some other people who knew him. Same thing with when you're doing Claudius. But ideally, I'm trying to get primary, secondary or tertiary sources for this stuff. And then looking, then I also look at all of the sort of 20th, uh, sometimes 18th and 19th century books that were written, but, you know, sometimes, mostly 20th and if you're lucky, some 21st century books by academics and scholars as well. And I try and absorb all of it. I will typically, for a podcast, read 
between maybe 20 or 30 sources. And then I kind of get a heat map of the story. And if you accept as a basic premise, as I do, that everyone has an agenda, everyone mm. has a bias, everything contains an element of propaganda, some yeah. truth, some fiction, you develop this massive heat map. And then, you know, I try and figure out based on just my reading of what's going in, where, where the middle line is, what, what, what might have actually happened. And, you know, this is true, you know, when you read uh, like a lot of the tertiary, secondary uh, uh, and primary sources, contemporary sources of ancient world, like when we're doing the Caesars, if you read Tacitus or Suetonius, these guys were writing sort of late first, early second century CE. They have an agenda. I mean, they were on this, they were in this political camp or Tacitus didn't like these guys and did like, and it's very obvious when you read it that there are people that he favours and he's nice to them. And then there's people he doesn't like, quite often women. And uh, he he's, takes a very harsh stance towards them. So, you know, there, there are cultural issues there, of course, and his own personal issues. And he was writing under the Trajan emperors. And so, you know, they, he wanted to sort of separate them from the Julio-Claudians and all this kind of political machinations that's going on. When it comes to stuff more modern, um, like the Cold War show that we're doing. Yeah. So, for example, at the moment, we're doing the Korean War, which for the kids out there, sort of 1950 to 1953. Um, unfortunately, most of the sources that you can access in English are written by Western historians uh, or contemporaries, you know, soldiers, journalists, politicians, uh, that were there and people writing at the time, contemporaries back home, and um, historians that have been writing about it for the last 70, 80 years. Um, it's very difficult to get my hands on primary sources by North Koreans who were there. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, South Koreans are a little bit easier, but North Koreans is very hard. Or the Soviets or the Chinese very difficult to get primary sources in English that you can read through. Sometimes you're lucky. Um, and sometimes you get Western authors that have gone and interviewed or have translated bits of that. But again, my approach is to try and get as big a, a number of sources as I can and deliberately trying to cover all sides of the argument. Because yeah. um, what you find, particularly in Cold War-related stuff, is Western sources tend to take a very pro-Western stance. North Koreans were bad, Russians were bad, Chinese were bad, or communists were bad. Bad, okay? It's yeah. just, it's very, very embarrassingly binary, their view on it. Very embarrassing. Like, I'm talking big-name historians, like highly esteemed uh, people who have got very high senior academic positions at leading in educational institutions and have written many, many books. And I read their stuff and I'm just embarrassed for them. It is so blatantly biased. Now, some of it may not be their fault. As I said before, it's very like if you try and write a book, if you're an American academic and you try and write a book about the about Stalin, let's say about Soviet Russia, the Soviet Union, 
and you take a favorable view of Stalin, you're just not going to get that book published in the United States. There, no one's going to touch it with a bar of soap, even though he's yeah. been dead since and you're not going to get paid. You're not, going to, you're not going to get published. You're not going to get paid. No yeah. one's going to read it apart from people like me. So, and I'm a very small demographic. So, um, you know, people, if you're an academic or a historian, you're covering these sorts of things, you kind of need to write what you can get paid to write or, or the, what people will read. Otherwise, what's the point? Um, unless you're like me and you do this stuff just for giggles, um, it's very hard for them to make a living out of it. So, uh, but yeah, that's that's my job as a storyteller. And that's how I see myself, by the way. I don't see myself as an historian uh, because I'm not, I'm just a storyteller. I try and uh, read uh, everything I can get my hands on as, as um, primary or contemporary as possible, as well as, you know, uh, uh, modern analysis of what actually happened. Because of course, over time, we get access to more information. Stuff gets released. Uh, we we get you know more and more information that comes out all the time. Even when you're dealing with ancient history, this happens. Um, so yeah, my job is to try and absorb it all and figure out where the middle ground is. Cool. Thank you. That's a really good, like in-depth answer to the question, and it's actually knocked a lot of the questions out of the park and just. One of the things that I wanted to point out is I think you've basically summarized that if you are going to do any sort of argument or essay or even just like an argument like down at the pub or whatever, it's just you've got to consider everybody's motivations. Like you've said, you've got to get that heat map going. You can't just go, right, I'm going to do an essay. What's the very first thing that Google says? And I've seen kids who... Like they don't even click on the first web link anymore because Google serves up this like little box at the top of the search, which is like, this is what happened. And it might as well be the Bible. It might as well be gospel that it's like, yes, that is it. And what would you say to kids that are engaging with history like that? Well, first of all, I'd say the Bible shouldn't be trusted either. I did a whole <laughs> documentary on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, you know, that's a, that's a very lazy approach to doing anything. And, like, I, you know, my uh, approach when I'm doing any podcast is uh, or film or book is I want to make sure that if anyone comes and argues with me, mm. I can back up whatever I've said doesn't necessarily mean that I think I'm right because I don't. I'm 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 just a guy. I mean, I, I don't have any special access to the truth. I'm trying to get as much data as I can, and then I'm trying to interpret that data as honestly and as neutrally as I possibly can with my admitting that I've got all my own cognitive biases because I grew up as a white man and in the seventies and eighties in a, you know, wealthy Western country, all that kind of stuff. So I, I have an inherent bias when I'm interpreting this stuff, but you really want to be able to, I mean, just for your own uh, peace of mind and intellectual honesty and sense of that you're a smart person who is, is takes themselves seriously is 
make sure you can back up everything that you write or, or say. If somebody says, well, you said this, where did you get that from? You go, okay, here's my data source and here's my, and, and here's my interpretation of it. Now, please, if you think I'm wrong, and I say this on my podcast all the time, if you disagree with me, tell me because I want to know if I'm wrong. But if you're going to disagree with me, come, come prepared. Yep. You know, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Don't come and say, well, I just think you're wrong because I will smack you down. Like if you're going to argue with me, that's great. I want you to, but come prepared. Don't yep. waste my time. And I think that's, you know, if these students, um, not to, it's got nothing to do with history. If you just want to be an intelligent, uh, useful member of society, uh, not just uh, uh, somebody who's taking up oxygen and wheat bix like uh, uh, think through this stuff hard. When I worked at Microsoft, I worked at Microsoft for a long time, and the, the sort of one of the, the mantras that we had at Microsoft, which we got from Bill Gates, who got it from the founder of Toyota, is something called the five levels of why. If I went into a into a management meeting at Microsoft and I and they said, well what are your sales going to be this quarter? And I gave them a number. They would say, why? And I'd have to back it up with why I thought that was true. But then they said, but why is that true? And I'd have to back that up. They go, yes, but why is that true? You had to go five levels of why deep yeah, to make sure that you had really deeply thought through your statements. And if you couldn't do that, you would feel very embarrassed and probably somebody would throw a chair at you across the room for wasting Bill Gates's time. I never got to present to Bill Gates, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've heard of stories where that did happen. Yeah. So this is just like, if you, if you want to prepare yourself just for the world, like there are, there are like everyone has an opinion and most of them are just that their opinions. But if you want to really go through life and, and, and contribute something, you, you have to prepare yourself with, facts and uh, be able to justify your statements by backing them up with facts and explain how why, why you interpreted the facts that way and listen i've had i've had scholars on my podcasts who I, i've challenged on things and they just they flatline um other podcasters it's kind of embarrassing for them when you know, you punch holes in their arguments based on data that they didn't even know it existed or they've taken easy, lazy interpretations of data because it's the, the, the mainstream view in their particular country, but they don't actually, they haven't actually read the other side of the story. We had a guy on the Cold War show where that happened a couple of months ago. It's quite embarrassing for him. Yeah, I remember listening to that one. Right, yeah. yeah. That Like he was taking the i guess a very pro western position as you've been laying out and you just continue to come back and he's like well what about this what about this what about the the side of like the communist side and what they're doing it's like have you ever thought about that or this particular leader or this president because he was a he was an expert on uh presidents it was that correct he does a president's uh podcast yeah we were talking about truman um but it you know, I always start all of whenever I'm talking about somebody in history, I start with the assumption that they're a human being and that they're a rational actor. 
right? So meaning they have the same sort of wants and desires that we all have, Maslowian hierarchy of needs. They want to be loved. They want to have some fun. They want to have a family. They want safety and security for themselves and their friends and their family. They want to have something they can do with their time that gives them some level of fulfillment. They want to have enough food on the table that they're not starving and same with their friends and family. You know, basic human needs that everybody has those basic human needs and the, and the vast majority of what they do in their lives uh, is about trying to obtain and achieve those things for themselves, their friends, their family, and if they're a political leader, their nation. Uh, and they want to they want to do it for their nation because they want to do it for themselves and their family, right? If if the if, if you take somebody like Stalin, for example, yep. he he wanted the Soviet Union, particularly Russia, to be secure from future invasions. Country had already been invaded by foreign forces twice in his lifetime. You know, the second time, World War II, resulting in the deaths of 20 million people across the Soviet Union. Um, he wanted to make sure that didn't happen again. Why? Well, for his own safety. At the end of the day, like his own, protecting his own life and the lives of his friends and family. Now, of course, and this is where my book comes in, there's also a thing called psychopaths out there and psychopaths are real and they exist and they've always existed and they're somewhere between one and maybe four or 5% of the adult population rank highly on the psychopath scale according to clinical psychiatrists working in the field today. Um, and, you know, the, the, the basic driver of psychopaths is they, they lack empathy. Mm. So they're, they're able to hurt people um, friends, family, their own nation, their own citizens, other people, and not care about it. They're, they're, they, all they want is to increase their own wealth and power. Unfortunately, those people tend to rise to positions of power in, in all of our institutions, businesses, governments, religions, teachers, hmm. um, you name it, police, <laughs> firemen, uh, whatever, podcasters, yeah. uh, the media, lawyers. And those people, yes, they have basic human needs, but they're also a little bit broken. And so, you know, we need to factor that into our analysis of historical events as well and contemporary events. But, um, yeah, I forgot what the question was. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> ranting now. Sorry. No, that's all good. We were, we were talking about giving everybody their, like, an equal starting point. Yes, and that right. last little bit that you were bringing in was that through the information that you gathered in the book, you also need to consider that perhaps you shouldn't do that for absolutely every person when you look at them maybe a little bit more closely, acknowledge the fact that there are some people out there who don't have the same level of empathy as, say, the majority of people and they can get to positions of power more effectively because they're okay with loss. They're okay with being a little bit more brutal and I guess bureaucratic. Is that kind of like what you were trying to say? Yeah. Well, a couple of things like um, going back to assuming the, the basic rational actor stance of people on all sides. So I guess one thing that I am convinced of 
having been studying history for 30 odd years is that there's no such thing as good and bad. Uh, there's no good sides. There's no the good side and the bad side. Yeah, I grew up, I was born in 1970. So I grew up in the later stages of the Cold War. I was, uh, you know, 28, uh, 29, 30 when the, cold, when the wall came down in Berlin. Um, no, sorry, 18 to 20 when the Cold War ended with the Berlin Wall, et cetera. And, um, you know, I grew up in Australia during that time where we were kind of taught that the communists were bad and the capitalists were good. The West was good. The other side were just evil, like yeah, just black evil. and white. And, and not just wrong, but evil. Evil, dangerous warmongers who wanted to take over the world and rape all of our women and kill all of the children and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Really overblown Hollywood Bond, James Bond, bad guy level stuff, right? Yeah. And the more I've read history over the years, the more I've realized, well, that's just not the case. That was just massive amounts of propaganda in the West. Sure, that side did some bad stuff. They also did some good stuff. Our side did some bad stuff and did some good stuff. And in fact, really, when you do the math on who did the most bad stuff, it's pretty hard to tell. <laughs> it's, there were a lot of atrocities on both sides. We just don't tend to know about our own because they get covered up and they get spun, and there's a lot of money and time and effort spent on propaganda. But I, I try and always assume that there is no good and there is no bad side. Let's see what the facts are and figure out where the blame lies. The second bit about psychopaths is that, yeah, look, they, they have a very high appetite for risk. They inherently believe they are superior to everyone around them. They always believe they're going to win because they believe they are superior to everyone around them, and they believe they're smarter than everyone around them. And so they're willing to do things that most of us aren't willing to do. Most of us can't fire 2,000 employees on Christmas Eve and still have a good night's sleep. We can do it, but we'll probably feel horrible about it. Yeah. Normal people, non-psychopaths, do bad things, but we feel bad about it. We, we suffer from anxiety, guilt. We worry that we might get caught, et cetera. When a psychopath does bad things, they have the best night of their, the best sleep of their life that night because they think they're a winner. Yeah, they hey, won. look what I did. Yeah, I did it. No one else could have done that. I'm awesome. I'm going to toast with a bottle of champagne and some caviar. So they do tend to rise to the top, uh, unfortunately, because our organizations tend to encourage a certain kind of behavior that uh, they are made for, really. So, yeah, we do find that they tend to. There's a much higher percentage of them in leadership positions and institutions than there are just in the broader community. Um, I wanted to move into a couple of the student questions that they've given us just to the last like, couple of minutes. Um, what's your favourite subject in history? I know you've been talking about the your research into the psychopaths. Is that your, like your your pet passion at the moment, like finding out that particular aspect of perhaps maybe power works or that trend works, or is there a particular podcast that you like the most that you think was done really well that you would recommend that kids would go have a look at if they want to have a look at your work? I'd have to say the film, uh, Marketing the Messiah. I mean, um, I've been... That's probably been my longest fascination um, is religion 
and where religion came from, and particularly Christianity, but because I grew up in a mostly Christian country at the time, but and it's the biggest religion in the world as well, still today, even though it's declining, and particularly in places like Australia, but globally is still 2.2 billion Christians. Um, and it's a fascinating story. And, and the more that I've delved into it over the years, the more fascinating it has become, which is why I did the film on it. And I plan one day to do a like a Netflix series. There's so much more of that story to tell that I could fit into a hundred minute film, but that's really the one that is just the gift that doesn't stop giving. The more you dig into cause I mean, it's a lot, it's been around for nearly 2000 years as well. Right. So it's yeah. uh, it, there's a, there's a lot there to drill into. And as I say, in the beginning of the film, like I, I went to Sunday school as a kid growing up in Bundaberg and country Queensland. And uh, you know, the version that I sort of was taught of where Christianity came from is so far removed from what I know today as somebody who studied it. Like, it, and, and the version that I know of today, which is the version that's actually in the Bible, is so much more interesting than the version I was taught at Sunday school. It's so much more complicated and convoluted and messy and violent and uh, all the good stuff that I love about history, violence and uh, <laughs> violence and messiness and psychopaths and human drama. Uh, it's, it's, you know, really, really fascinating to the point where, you know, we can't even really be certain that Jesus even existed. The evidence for that is slim, to, to say the least, slim to none, really. Yeah. Uh, there's no evidence really that he didn't exist either. And it's one of those things where you could kind of go either way. I tend to be kind of agnostic on it because it's there's really no evidence to point in either direction as far as I'm concerned. That's sufficient evidence to convince me of one thing or the other. But, um, you know, you think about the fact that there's still 2.2 billion Christians today based on a religion from a guy that may not have even existed and the guy that built the religion, really, as we know it today, St. Paul, never met Jesus, never saw him, never wrote anything that he read. Um, yeah, that was gobsmacking, that part of the documentary that I was looking at. I was like, what? <laughs> like, you're serious? But it's like all those other ancient philosophers <laughs> and historians, they weren't even at the battle, but they're the ones you got to buy when you go to university. And it's even better when he does, in his own by his own testimony, meet the guys who he said knew Jesus, Peter yeah. and James, one of whom is supposedly, according to tradition, Jesus's brother. And he, they said, "What are you teaching people?" And he told them, "They went, no, nah, you're wrong, mate. That's not what it, what he what he is all about at all." And Paul was like, "Ah, oh, what do you know?" And and just did his own thing, and yeah. then they got wiped out during the great Jewish-Roman war that happened in the, the 60s under Nero. And um, th that's it. That whole, that whole, <laughs> the actual. <laughs> what maybe really happened is just gone. Gone. And they, yeah. there's nothing that survives. Nothing they didn't, if they wrote anything down, it doesn't survive. Uh, if anyone knew them and wrote something down, that doesn't survive. All we've got is based on Paul, the guy who didn't know him, didn't see him, never heard him speak. And when he did meet the guys who he said knew him, they said, no, you're wrong, mate. And he's like, oh, what do you know? And that's 2.2 yeah. billion people today still a part of that. That's fascinating to me. That blows my mind anyway. Yeah. Well, it's stories like that and plenty of other 
times I've had like those mind blow moments where it keeps me going back to asking, like, like you said, those five levels of why, because it's just like, what else out there is just flat out wrong? Like wouldn't stand up to a proper argument or perhaps the proper argument is never had, or you live in a part of the world where you're never allowed to have that argument. Like, yeah, that's that's just what keeps me coming back, and I'm always happy to listen to different interpretations because, yeah, I wouldn't have had the interpretation that you're bringing out now. I was talking to my wife last night. You were bringing up like embarrassing sort of positions. Like I remember like a year eight video I did on the Vietnam War and probably not having a firm grasp of it in any regards. But, you know, I was, I was into like computers and movie maker and I was getting these clips off YouTube, what was available. And from what I could work out, I was like, you know, Ho Chi Minh's the bad guy. And it's like burned in my brain that like I was showing these soldiers and, you know, they were coming off the battlefield and it's like, you know, our Australian soldiers, like how good are they? And like, this is all bad for them. And it's because of this guy and this black and white image of Ho Chi Minh just shows up like a, like a convict picture. And yeah, I always look back to that and go, you had absolutely no idea what you were talking about. And like, you just got to look a little bit deeper. You've heard my series on Ho Chi Minh, I assume, that we've done so far, the first part of his story. Yeah, and he's a great guy. <laughs> like he's- he, he, is, he is literally, like, if there was any guy who ever lived who's as closest to Jesus that you could want, it was Ho Chi Minh. Yeah. This guy devoted literally his entire adult life from the age of, like, 19 when he went to France during the peace conference after World War I trying to get the attention of Woodrow Wilson, the American president, to get him and, and tried to present him with a petition to get him to, for America to support independence from French colonialism for the Vietnamese, right through to when he died in his late 70s fighting the Americans after defeating the Japanese, then the French, then the Americans eventually. I mean, the, the final, the war didn't end until after he died, a few years after he died, but... He literally spent his whole life, and most of that, living in caves, living, yeah. you know, living hand to mouth, massive health problems, just trying to give his people independence from colonial powers. I mean, what a guy! Uh, what a guy! What a, what a, what a dedicated life he lived. I mean, the other guy who comes very close, I think, is. Che Guevara, but you know, the, these are good. And yet, we, we, we are given this image of these guys as being the epitome of evil. I mean, it's not your fault that you thought that when you were a kid, because that, that's the version of the story that we get told here. And it is not just wrong, it is so far from right. Yeah. It, it's obviously been manipulated. Like, I can forgive mistakes or different interpretations, but when you have, when, when there are poles apart, you have to go, okay, what's going on here? Why am what and then not only am I being massively lied to, why am I being lied to? Who is engineering these lies and why are they engineering these lies? Why do they want me to think this way? Why don't they just tell me the truth and let me work it out for myself? Why am I being sold this packet of propaganda? What's the agenda in my own country that's going on? And then that leads you down to a whole other kettle of fish, right? 
Oh, and then you can get labelled a conspiracy theorist, which I, I think is what maybe deters like a lot of people because you have genuinely sceptical people and then you have like these other theories that, again, if you scratch the surface, they don't have their own evidence, but the maybe the person who's trying to package the popular narrative can kill two birds with one stone. It's just like, let's paint it with the same brush that it's like, oh, you want to take a critical look? Well, you obviously think everything's, you know, manipulated and bad and it's like you're just untrustworthy and it just stops people from thinking. Yeah, it does. And look, I I take a position on this that, first of all, if you're not sceptical about everything, then you're just naive because anyone who's read any amount of history knows that we've been lied to, the people have been lied to constantly in every country, in every era, by people in positions of power, politicians, religions, the media, corporations, you name it, the military, etc. So uh, we can be pretty confident that we're being lied to today. Um, any given day, somebody in a position of power is lying to us or telling us half-truths, right? Mm. Um now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything is a lie. So yeah, the job of sceptical, critical thinkers is to examine what we're being told, demand data to back that up, look for the data, and then try and make conclusions based on the data. And if you, I mean, if you think they're lying to you, but you can't back up an alternative argument with with facts, then don't take a position on it is where I stand. You just say, okay, look, I don't necessarily believe that, but I don't have evidence for a competing theory. So right now I'm just staying agnostic. I'm on the fence. I'm not buying into anything. And unfortunately, in many cases, uh, it's, it's difficult to get our hands on the evidence Sometimes it comes out 50, 60, 70 years later under freedom of information. Sometimes it doesn't because it dies with the people that knew it. Um, uh, sometimes we're never, like whether or not Jesus existed, chances are we're never going to get evidence one way or the other to support either argument. Um, so, but it's it's good to be, a, good to be sceptical and a critical thinker. It's bad to attach yourself to alternative theories that can't be supported with sufficient amounts of evidence because then you're just, you're, that's just silly. You're just, you're just creating more noise is my personal view anyway. Yeah, we're, we're definitely, I think the reason why we're like harping on about this is I think Cameron and I know at this point that you can get targeted for being like a critical thinker or going against the grain sometimes. But yeah, make sure you just, Make sure you got some facts to back yourself up. That's what we try to teach in the writing, that the simplest form of a paragraph is like you have a point, you explain it, and then where's the, where the hell is your evidence? And then once you have the evidence, it's like, so what? Like, can you then link that back to your original question? And then it's just a repeat. Just keep going and going and going to the person who's reading your thing is just completely convinced. Like, there's no holes. That's a perfect essay. But I would also add to that yep. what I what I see happen in history books a lot um, is, and you know, I did a two hour show this morning talking about COVID vaccinations and the same things happening at the moment. It, it, it's not enough 
to have a statement in a paragraph and point to one source mm. as your because my question would then be, well, why do we trust that source? Yeah, true. why is that the source that you picked, and why do we trust that source? You know, in in my particularly my um, uh, contemporary shows, the bullshit filter, etc. I talk about my approach to figuring out stuff these days when it comes to contemporary news is combination of epistemology and heuristics. Epistemology is how do we know what is true in this particular domain? So it is different. History uh, has a different kind of epistemology to, you know, the social sciences do to physics, right, or, or chemistry. Uh, you know, there are different, but we need to know what the epistemology is for whatever the domain is that we're talking about. How, how do we get as close to possible as, to the facts in this particular domain? How is it done in this profession? Once you know that, then because we can't all be experts in everything, and I'm not an expert in anything apart from just talking a lot, uh, <laughs> yeah. as, you've, as you've discovered, the second thing is heuristics. Heuristics it basically means sort of a rule of thumb, a shortcut. So because I can't be an expert on everything, who is the expert or the experts that I go to in this subject, in that subject, in that subject? And then why do I choose those experts? What is it about them that makes me believe they're the people that can get me close to the truth? Usually it's I'm looking at their qualifications, I'm looking at their track record, I'm looking at whether or not there are any obvious biases that I can see in their previous work. Um, I, I, quite often I'm looking at how willing they are to upset the mainstream view in some instances, but not always. Like they're balanced. They're not necessarily just uh, taking a, a contrarian view in everything because that's what they do. Um, you know, they're, it's, they're, they're balanced and they can explain themselves and their sources and their analysis and that kind of stuff. So just having one source is dangerous, I think, because it could be that that one source is no good. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just maybe just to continue on that thread, do you think that, say, you are writing this argument and you've gone through and you've said your point, you've explained it and your source, before you go back linking it to the question, does it show that extra level of like conviction to the argument if you take a time, a sentence or two to say, and this is why the source is credible? Well, I don't know that I would put that in an essay or a book uh, necessarily, but I want to make sure, or in a podcast, but I want to make sure that if somebody challenges me and say, well, hold on, why did you choose that source? I can back it up. I've thought it through. You know, yep. I don't necessarily, it's probably superfluous to put it in the, the film or the documentary or the book or whatever, the podcast, because you're just trying to make the, the, you know, you're trying to tell a story, right? But uh, I want to make sure that um, if anyone comes at me afterwards and tries to uh, tell me I'm wrong, I can go, I can, I can go toe to toe. You know, I, I, I know why I use that source and why I think it's credible. Again, I might be wrong. My source may be terrible, but at least I've thought it through. At least I can take a stance. I have a position. I've, I've deliberately and um, knowingly 
chosen that source for a particular set of reasons, you know? Yeah. I've got one last question, which was asking, because you've spent time looking at history, studying at history, um, I think you've, you've already brought up that you worked at Microsoft, you've been like a, a film writer and director and author and made podcasts. Kids are always asking, like, I'm thinking in subject, subject selections, and it's just, sir, I like the subject, but is it really going to lead to a job? I don't want to be a librarian or I don't want to be a historian. And what would you say from what you've seen in your experience and people that you've interviewed um, or just like interacted with, what sort of, what are the transferable skills from this subject as a bit of a sign off? <sighs> yeah. Hard to say. Like, um, like I don't have any qualifications in history. You know, I was obviously an IT guy um, until I was in my mid-30s. I was in my mid-30s when I left IT, the corporate world, and started podcasting. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that you know, like there's a role for historians in academia and that kind of stuff, obviously, if that's what you want to do, you want to, teach and do research into history. I, I know a lot of academics that enjoy their lives in academia doing that kind of stuff. They get the freedom to do research um, when they're not teaching. And as long as you like teaching too, you know, that's a, a, a great profession. But we do live in a world today where you can create a living for yourself by telling stories about these sorts of things. Um, mm. You know, uh, there's a lot of, lot of history, really great history content on TikTok today that I follow, quite a few Australian historians and, and art majors that are talking about these sorts of subjects on TikTok and doing very well. I don't know if they're making an income out of it from TikTok necessarily yet, but they've got, you know, millions of followers and... Um, they probably have opportunities to turn that into some sort of a, uh, an income. Yeah, I've been working at making a living out of telling history stories now for uh, 15 years. And um, it all started with the Napoleon podcast. And, um, you know, it's, it, uh, it, it's been fun. I mean, I, I get great joy out of it. I mean, not necessarily... I took a massive pay cut when I left Microsoft to go tell history stories. Um, but uh, I've never regretted a day of it because I enjoy this stuff. Like I get so much fun out of it. It's uh, like, I feel guilty all of the time that I get paid to do what I would do for free. Yeah. Like I, I used to read before podcasting, I, I used to read 10 books a week on all sorts of subjects, just because I wanted to learn stuff. And I used to try and talk to colleagues at Microsoft and friends and family about it, and their eyes would glaze over in 10 seconds. Right? Oh, God, here he goes again. <laughs> Happens to me all the time. <laughs> right. You know how it is, right? My yeah. wife still does it today, and she met me at a Napoleon conference. Um, but... I have an audience now that want to listen to the stories, like listening to the stories, pay to listen to the stories. So it's I, I get paid to read books on history and tell stories about history. Now, it's it's not 
easy to build that and put that together. It's taken many, many years and, um, and, and, you know, the generosity of people that have, that have sponsored things and funded things and contributed things over the years, supported it, co-hosts like Ray and David Markham who've done the shows with me, um, who can tolerate my ranting. Uh, but, it, it, look, if you love it, you know, there's an old canard that if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I fully subscribe to that. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be, you know, the richest person on the street if you do what you love. But I've got this thing. When I do seminars on entrepreneurship and, and stuff like that, which I do from time to time, I've got a thing I call, uh, it's a wheel of the 10 things. And it's the 10 things that I measure my success in life on. They're the 10 things that I value. And one of them is money. Do I have enough money to live a comfortable lifestyle? But the other nine things are my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my kids, my relationship with my friends. Do I get up every morning excited about the day? Do I have good sort of health? Do I have good um, spiritual or philosophical uh, view on life, you know, comfort? Um, All these sorts of things. And... I've just known so many people in my life that hate their jobs <laughs> yeah. after a while. Uh, or they're just not feeling, they may not hate it, but it doesn't, they're not excited. Not fulfilled. When I worked at Microsoft, yeah, when I worked at Microsoft, like the first couple of years were great. But after two or three years, I loathed going there in the day. It was just, there was just politics and idiots and customers and the whole thing. And I just kind of got sick of it. I've never, ever, like since I've been doing podcasting, I've never had a bad day in the last 15 years. Like every day is the greatest day because I get to read these great stories and then figure out how I'm going to tell them in an entertaining way. And I get paid to do it. It's um, so, you know, these days I make pretty good money, but for a long time I didn't. But I used to say out of the 10 things that I measure my life on, nine of those I rate myself very highly on. Got a great marriage, great kids, great relationship with my kids, good friendships. I love what I do. My health's good, et cetera, et cetera. Good peace of mind, all these things. The one thing I didn't have was money, but I always used to say, if there was, if I had to give up one of those 10 things, the first thing I'd give up is money. Because at the end of the day, if, if you've heard any stories about people at the end of their life, the last thing that they worry about is, oh, I wish I'd made more money. You never hear anyone on their deathbed said, I wish I'd made more money. I wish I'd spent more time with my children. I wish I'd spent more time with my wife or husband. I wish I'd, you know, traveled more. I wish I'd learned a language. I wish I'd experienced more. I wish I'd chased my dreams. I wish I'd done that kind of stuff those are the things that really matter and if you if you love history pursue it and you'll figure it out um you know you, you, you if if you uh work if you work at it and you're you're creative and you're innovative you will figure out a way to make a living out of it. you know there's the thing i know i'm going on here but about 20 years ago a guy called kevin kelly wrote a blog post called a thousand true fans And he was way ahead of his time. And he said, the future business model for creative people, writers, artists, whatever, is to find a thousand 
true fans, 1,000 people who really dig what you do. If you can get 1,000 people to pay you $10 a month for your creative output, that's $120,000 a year, probably for the rest of your life. Because if they really, like, think about a musician or a writer or a filmmaker that you really love. Who's your favorite musician, um, Blake? Um, oh, man, this is, con- this is going to be controversial. I really like Chris Brown before, I guess, all the controversy around him. Yeah, that's really embarrassing. You want to change yeah. your answer? You can edit that out later. Yeah. Oh, man. I didn't even get to prepare for this one. Oh, jeez. Music, music, music. Michael Bublé as well. I really like him. Oh, that's worse. Come on. Got to give you a third shot. (laughs) All right. Let's go with Michael Bublé. If Michael Bublé came to you and said, hey, Blake, pay me 10 bucks a month and I'll give you, you know, uh, 10 new songs every month. No one else will get them, just you or our subscribers. Um, What would you say? I'd be like, sweet, exclusive access. Let's go. Easy, right? Here's my credit card. Take the 10 bucks. Don't even think about it. Now, if you can find, so if you're if you're a creative person, you can find a thousand people like that out of a population, the global population of seven billion people. You're set, right? That's it. You've got your little audience. You can connect to them over the net. No middlemen, no intermediary costs, whether you're writing music and giving it to them or you're writing books or poetry or you're doing paintings or cartoons or comics or you're making podcasts or you're making films or whatever it is you can do whatever you want if you can find a thousand people to pay you 10 bucks a month you're financially set okay you're not going to be driving a rolls royce you're not going to be living in the biggest house in this street you're not going to be you know flying first class around the world but you will get up every day and do what you want to do Without a boss, no no colleagues to annoy you unless you want them. <laughs> you can you can like I've worked in this room in my underpants every day for fifteen or sixteen years, working for myself, doing whatever the hell I want. I've traveled the world as a result. I've got thousands and thousands of awesome fans that I get to hang out with and chat to. That are cool people, make me laugh. They're smarter than me. Um, co-hosts that i love uh it's just it's it's the greatest man it really is met my wife because of my napoleon podcast i met her at a napoleon conference so you know it 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 really is a great life is it easy no is it worth it in my book absolutely well thank you very much the people who were going to tune in thought they were just going to get you know some steps on how to validate sources and We've gone down an absolute rabbit hole and finished with a motivational speech as well. Thank you so much, Cameron, for your time. We didn't Um, even talk about Bitcoin, but that could be another podcast. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to drag this on for hours, and I don't know if it's something that we can can agree with at at the moment, but I am going to be doing a history of Bitcoin, which can you promise me you're going to listen to? No. I've already seen two documentaries on the history of Bitcoin, man. My, the producer, see, that's the poster for my film. The producer yeah. of my film has produced two documentaries of Bitcoin that I've been to and seen. Trust me, I know everything about the history of Bitcoin that I could ever need to know. Well, you might need another source. <laughs> okay. Fair, <laughs> fair point. Fair point. Radio. Thank you, Cameron. Uh, you've been awesome. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in for the Modern History HSC podcast.